I was taught my entire life that I have to lose my life to find it, and I feel like I finally did that when I picked up and moved. And not even lose my life to find it, but like I lost my life to finally find myself. And that like, that's what I was stopped from the whole time. Yeah, like we condition people as soon as they're in to, to start lying about who they really are. and correspondence about spiritual de- and reconstruction. Season 3, Episode 5, Good Grief. healing from religious trauma syndrome as separation, confusion, avoidance, feeling, and rebuilding. This list mirrors Peter Levine's outline for healing from other forms of trauma, leaving the environment, establishing safety, and releasing emotions. For many coming out of evangelicalism, leaving the environment and establishing safety spans the separation confusion, and avoidance phases before arriving at feeling, or releasing emotions, and rebuilding. The initial separation phase looks different for everyone, but to paraphrase what Richard Rohr refers to as catalysts for all enlightenment, separation almost always comes on the heels of either great love or great suffering.
wasn't wasted time, not a wasted time or a tear. It's such a sweet relief, such a good, good grief to get here. The separation phase of leaving my previous environment broke my heart. But that breaking is necessary for an individual to be able to connect with what allows them to begin to rebuild. Confusion and avoidance can be a dance, more circular than linear, and takes the time it takes. Having patience for oneself during the process is crucial, considering that all notions of personhood, purpose, relationship to others, explanations about the world, interpretations of the past, expectations for the future, and directions about how to feel, think, make decisions, and lead your life have been lost. The confusion phase often sets in very quickly because the previously provided foundation of certainty to stand upon is suddenly gone. And avoidance often enters not long after because the overwhelming reality of everything that has been lost or has changed can be too much to handle. Without support, it can be extremely difficult to move toward connecting with emotions because the former shaming voices of indoctrination haunt, whispering that emotions are sinful. When someone has been taught for so long to dismiss or avoid their own inner world, learning to embrace those emotions is a crucial component of the path to healing. And very often, the first step is to give voice and permission for grief. Accessing grief is crucial to any and every healing process, but it can be extremely difficult to do. Connecting with grief is important because it is a sign that an experience has finally moved into the past, which is an indicator that the trauma cycle that a person experiencing PTSD has been stuck inside has now been completed. Giving the self permission to grieve can be especially difficult for people leaving spiritually traumatic environments, as many people don't know that their former believing life is something to emotionally grieve at all, rather than simply something to change their conscious mind about. Some people may even feel silly actively grieving over a god or an idea of god that they no longer actively believe in. The longer someone spends away from their former worldview, the more difficult it can be for them to connect with their own grief and loss from leaving. But without it, true healing, forward motion, and rebuilding cannot happen. former authoritarian faith system can feel like a divorce and a death at the same time, which makes it not only an extremely complicated form of grief, but also a form of grief with less readily available assistance 
and no actual individual person to point to as the source of the pain. Many people haven't been given the opportunity or education to know that their psychological and physiological symptoms may be linked to their former manner of thinking and believing. The further away people get from believing specific evangelical teachings, the more ridiculous those ideas seem to them. But this can be problematic because it often results in a person putting more pressure on themselves to move on and no longer be affected by it. This can result in people not connecting with their bodies enough to realize that simply because their brains have dismissed teachings and ideas, their bodies still need to heal from the physiological trauma brought on by those ideas. No hills on which to die No reason and no rhyme Just chaos coming down And the meaning we assign That's not nothing Oh, it's kind of everything It's the scars That I can finger It's a song Hey, how's it going? Good. How about you? I'm doing fine. Great. Uh, thanks for taking uh, some time to chat. Yeah, absolutely. You too. I've been thinking about just recently, and uh, I think my story is similar to a lot of others who have listened to both your music and your podcast, just mm. that it has been an anthem for hmm. the journey that I've been on. And I am kind of in the camp of people who like binge listen to it over a course of a month. Oh, um, wow. The funny, thing, the funny thing was is that I spent a majority of it, though, this past summer listening to it when I was moving from Northern Virginia, D.C. to Denver, Colorado. Mm. So I spent three days in the car. But the reason that I was moving is because I had I had to leave. And it was like I had to leave this fundamentalist religion that I was part of. And there was there was no way for me to leave without physically leaving. Wow. Um, think that is a familiar story too and I didn't I didn't fully know that at the time and it was kind of due to other factors and life just kind of played out that way but at the time I was a young life leader so it wasn't even that I was a a church person as much as a parachurch person which like parachurch ministry in some ways it was even more engrossing than Mm. just going to church on Sunday because it had to be everything that I was part of But I knew, though, that I could no longer be a Young Life leader. And I knew that I couldn't just quit leading Young Life because of just how much guilt and shame would come from that. And I couldn't stay Mm. in that area. And even so, when I left, it was like accusations all over the place of like running away. Wow. But I've I've just been thinking about lately, though. uh, Now I've been in Denver for nine months. Um, Oh, well. Yeah, and I just have thought, like, the first few were hard and sad, but I just keep thinking about, like, and I think I heard somebody talk about it or read about it last week, too, of, like, I was taught my entire life that I have to lose my life to find it, and I feel like I Hmm. finally did that. 
when I picked up and moved. Wow. And not even lost my life to find it, but like I lost my life to finally find myself. And that mm. like that's what I was stopped from the whole time. So it really yeah, so that was just like the wow. nutshell of my deconstruction. And I really did I lost my community. And even more than like lost my community, I lost what I like so truly believed I had to be doing to like give me eternal purpose. Mm. So I think that's been one of the hard things of being able to remind myself that like just because I'm not telling a 15 year old about Jesus, my life still has purpose. Uh, Yeah. Because really, too, I don't know, I've just spent so much time feeling that grief over even the amount of high schoolers that I taught and indoctrinated with the same things that really hurt me, Mm. but like tried to scare them into believing too. But I've also been immensely grateful that I'm not doing that to high schoolers anymore. Mm. And I haven't necessarily felt it's been my place to like go back and seek them out and be like, wait, don't believe this. Cause part of me like wants to just give them freedom and agency. That's right somebody telling them like either direction. Well, because, you know, we, we all arrived like you and I arrived at where we are by way of a path through those same things. And that's all part of what has made us who we are in the seasons where we are now. And so you have to imagine that for those folks, the same could happen. And yeah, I, I mean, because you wonder if you would run the risk of unintentionally communicating something that feels almost like fundamentalism in the other direction if it's being taught the same way right you know like that the other and you have to kind of just I guess trust that they'll find their way um that they will come to it in an organic way and they'll come to it and it's so funny how I like even hearing myself talk about it right this minute it how it feels like a faith journey all of a sudden it's like do we have to like trust that people yes. that like if you were to take this part of our conversation out of context it would it would really be baffling to some people but you have to yeah. trust that the truth will ultimately reveal itself to them <laughs> and that they will you know come to it and that it will yeah. the things that are true and real will prove themselves out and the things that aren't will be revealed and that that's a journey that those folks will need to go on for themselves and um but strange not to go back i mean i obviously i like to talk about what's forward at this point but what was it that eventually compelled you to say not only okay it's time but it's time and i need to physically remove myself from this place like what was it just a slow realization or or was there something that you were like, okay, I can't begin a new thing. Like I can't put new wine in old wineskins, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Such a great analogy. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I love yeah. repurposing biblical analogies at this stage of my life. Right. Exactly. Uh, reclaim them. Um, That's right. It was, it was a couple factors at the same time over the course of six months. Um, At the time, I started dating somebody who was an atheist, which Mm. is like the carnal sin of, of course, you know, the atheist convinced me that God may not be real, (laughs) but there, (laughs) but it wasn't, it wasn't that it was just that I had been so convinced by people that the only way to have life and life to the full was through Jesus. Like I have a tattoo of that on my body 
And I was surrounded by people who said that constantly and fully believed that. And so all of a sudden, this was the only person in my life that I was like, well, shit, I started this trying to convince you to like come to church with me because Mm. I believed that that was like what I was supposed to do. But now I'm seeing that you do have access to joy and peace and Mm. security and love. And actually you're a lot more free to do it. And all the people I know are a lot more angry and stressed out about earning our way into heaven. Mm. So that was a factor along with, I wanted to go on ministry staff at the time and I applied to do so. And, uh, I guess they could see through me better than I could, but they didn't hire me, which I was really disappointed about. Hmm. And at the time I felt betrayed by them and not only by them, like I felt like it was like by God sure, um, and that it was like this, okay, you told me that if I did X, Y, and Z, then it's going to work out. So it was both of those factors at the same time that I was like starting to see this world of it didn't even matter that he was an atheist, but like this world of people that didn't fully devote every minute of their lives to. Yeah. Well, you um, just hear, you just hear like maybe an alternate version of reality, like another, it's like hearing, yeah. um, hearing another story that's yeah. not the story you've always heard. And then you get to say, Oh, well, do I like that story? Does that story sound right? And does that ring true? And does that sound persuasive and maybe more so than, <laughs> than the previous story? And, and so you begin to just hear those things. And it sounds like you, it was less him persuading you of anything and more you, again, back, back, to, back to biblical or, or evangelical language. It was more you kind of just seeing the fruits of his life without him saying really much. Yeah. Um, that you were like, oh, like that. You know, if we're going to talk about abundant life, it feels like one is much more abundant than the other. And it's not mine. Well, that's, yeah. And that's what was... Um even so compelling about it is that he never even tried to persuade me. He just wasn't interested. Um, right. So anytime we would start to talk about Jesus or anything, we would sort of fight about it. And then he was just like, mm, no, thanks. That's not my narrative. And yeah. it was almost so freeing for me to see like, oh my gosh, you're not scared of eternal torment because you can't uh, convince me of this right now. Uh, that's so resonant, man. I mean, because... I have a lot of friends who are still believing and who are very devoutly evangelical and uh, or even Catholic and will have conversations about it. And it's like, I don't know how this will sound, but whatever it is, it's not my intention. I, I can see how much they're struggling with being truly objective about the veracity of what they're saying because I can see how high the stakes are for them. Mm-hmm. because I can see the weight of the world and the weight of eternity and the weight of their whole, the belief system that holds their whole current reality together in terms of their jobs and friendships and relationships and marriages and everything else. I can see the weight because for them, not only for themselves, but also for me as they see me, there's such a burden and it's, and which I receive as an expression of care. I, I, I see them caring deeply, but the point I think I'm trying to make is that I understand how hard it is to really try to look objectively at something that you're depending on for your life. And so I think it's hard. It's hard to speak honestly about it. And I see that burden in my friends when we talk about it. You know? Yeah. And that's like the lengths that people will go to, to try and convince 
yeah. to believe a certain way or at least just like tell you that they believe a certain way because then then you can rest easy even if you never speak to them again like okay okay i did my part yeah um, that's right yeah their blood's off my hands eternal torment <laughs> Another essential part of the recovery process is anger. In fact, it almost always comes before and ushers in the grief so desperately needed to complete the cycle of trauma. Something cannot be mourned unless its existence has been acknowledged. And for many people, their anger signals that acknowledgement. Most people recovering from evangelicalism wonder what to do with their anger when it starts to arise. And many are often too afraid to engage it and exhaust themselves trying to avoid or disconnect from it. This is because many of them have been previously taught that the acceptable response to upsetting circumstances is immediate forgiveness and forgetting and therefore can't give themselves permission to validate their own feelings as indications of the wrong done to them. Authoritarian systems train people to believe that their anger is immoral rather than transformative. But anger is an indicator of injustice, and owning, allowing, and directing anger is necessary reclamation work, first personally and then collectively. Since anger often serves as the gateway to grief, and grief is the indicator that an event or experience has been relegated to the past, very often, for people to begin to heal, they need permission to connect fully with their own anger first. This is not an easy task for people who have spent most of their life being told that anger was disobedience and that disobedience was sin. It is vitally important for people recovering from religious trauma to find safe spaces, both therapeutic and communal that allow for expressions of anger so that the survivor can discharge that energy they couldn't discharge during their prolonged threat experience. What so many people who are trying to heal need to know is that there can be safety and acceptance on the other side of expressions of anger so that they can learn how to self-regulate their emotions for potentially the first time. They need to know that it can be safe to express their feelings, even and often especially the heavier ones, and that those feelings won't overwhelm or cause them to lose relationship with their community or loved ones. They need to know their bodies need their permission to be angry in order to begin to heal. After spending so many years sweeping away or invalidating emotional realities, Recovery from evangelical belief for so many hinges upon being able to advocate for themselves. And very often, that means finally getting angry about what happened to them. After deconstruction, anger, and grief comes reconstruction in whatever form the individual decides they need. For many people, the rebuilding stage of their recovery and healing sometimes involves discovering their own autonomous identity and self-worth for the first time. 
people begin to learn how to make decisions for themselves that are rooted in curiosity rather than control. And as they rebuild their sense of self, they begin to become more grounded in who they are. The recovery of individuality and personhood is crucial to healing from trauma and developing a sense of internal safety and taking charge of one's own life is pivotal to their recovery from religious trauma in particular. People must be able to reconstruct their own pattern of meaning, regardless of what it looks like or how long it takes. It simply must be all their own. Tell me about your life there. What have you found? What, what, given the opportunity to kind of start fresh, like what are you finding are comforting practices? Have you found any new community and what's that like? And just what's your life like now? Yeah, I wrote down something really fun mm. uh, to look back on just a couple months ago. I actually went back to DC and when I was there one day, I wrote down in this like tiny notebook I carry around, I wrote down... Denver Beth gets to laugh because I was around friends and that was it. That was all that I wrote that whole week I was there. I was around these old friends and I just like, I realized I have even without knowing it, I've gotten to know myself and I have become free to figure out who I am Hmm. apart from shame, apart from Jesus, apart from a lot of it have been roots in like what male leadership has said about me mm. um, or to me. I have been free to make friends with people who don't share the same beliefs as me. And I have made this community of people that like, yes, we have things in common, but it's not what we believe about God. If anything, it's like, yeah, sure. Of course we have like similar life ethic similar view on politics and stuff like that. But Mm. really I have found out like one of the things that is so important to me is what makes me laugh. And so those have been people that I have built community with. Yeah. And like, I'm free to do things that, that I don't have to feel like have, Hmm. they have eternal value. (laughs) Yes. I know exactly what you mean. And, and I spent, I spent some years and this is not us picking and digging on, on young life. But I spent a lot of years working, uh, with young life and, and was involved in high school in young life. And that's like my whole conversion experience was at a young life camp. And I um, did not know that. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Frontier ranch in Colorado is where I, yeah. And I worked there several summers and was very involved in Houston and, and actually have very warm memories of that whole experience on uh, mostly. And, and and certainly of those people who are still some of those important people, 
when mm-hmm. I think back on the pantheon of heroes in my past, I mean, more than a few of them are folks who I knew through that time. But the point is, it's interesting how you find yourself kind of taking a almost subconscious real-time audit of like, what am I doing? What is its eternal value? Am I doing enough of that sort of thing? Am I making little micro-investments into various stages of ver- of people's salvation and setting all my dominoes up well all the time? And for me, I know that the, I remember the distinct feeling of like, oh, I no longer feel the burden of everything having to matter so much, which kind of makes it matter more. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's exactly what... I think for so long, I've been like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What we used to say is people aren't projects, but I finally feel like that's true. And I finally feel I'm 23 and I'm finally learning how to be vulnerable. Mm. And I feel like I've never known that before because I've always thought that my job is to give and give and give. And I'm learning how to like now open up to people Mm. uh, in a very fresh new way. And just feel like, oh, it's not that I just have to, quote unquote, pour out all the time. And to still use that word, like people are still able to pour into me. Mm. And that's what a reciprocal friendship looks like. I think I look back at relationships and I'm like, there are so many friendships that I thought were friendships, but they were just people that sucked and drained emotional energy out of me because I thought I had to be a therapist, although I'm not trained. Um, you know, or qualified to do that in any sense. And now like I'm, I'm starting to learn that my friendships can be about laughing together, being together and mutually supporting each other. That's right. Cause just like you just said, you're not really able to receive if you're not truly open. Like there is no conduit by which that can come in and can, you can't receive it if you're not open, but you don't realize that vocationally when you when it's the sharing of your faith is part of your job and is kind of the foundation of a lot of your relationships you really can't be at least with most of the people who you're spending time with you can't be re- truly vulnerable with them because yeah. mm-hmm. everything is staked on you modeling this thing that you're selling them you modeling it well and yeah. if you're a mess in front of people then i, I guess i always thought that that was an ironic part of Christianity as I understood it was like, you'd think that showing your great need for healing and fixing would be a decent advertisement for something that is designed to heal and fix people. But, but no one is willing to show that. And Mm -hmm. which I'm not even saying is a failure of Christianity as a belief system. It just is such the way it's practiced, especially in the West, it's just this intense fear that no one feels as though they can really be themselves and no one really feels as though they can. And that's why there's always this great people love the language of spiritual vulnerability and, and admitting, you know, accountability and, and, and confession of sins to each other and stuff. People love the idea of doing that. But when you really start doing it, people get really fearful and people start getting excommunicated and people get shocked and, and on the professional side, you know, records get start getting pulled off of shelves and people act like they're so shocked that it happened. And it's like, but isn't that the one thing we all said that we had in common and why we're all doing this together is because mm-hmm. we have these things. It's like, as long as we're talking about it in the abstract and hypothetical, everyone loves it. And it's great. and It's authentic. But as soon as I start getting specific and telling you my actual shit, everybody starts backing away and, you know, doesn't want to talk to me anymore. And what a strange 
juxtaposition that is with who I always understood Jesus to be. And so again, is my wanting to assign the failure not necessarily to the belief system, but to the, maybe the practitioners of it in my life at that time. That said, I still find the whole thing not persuasive and mostly implausible. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I'll, I'll give equal credit to both, but but I kind of hear you saying some of the same. And Yeah, right, exactly. And even that, Jesus seems fine. Don't have a problem with him. Yeah, it's the people. Yeah. Um, you just can never be so bad. Yeah, it's like we condition people as soon as they're in to, to start lying about who they really are. Yeah. And it's just you live that way for long enough and you realize that it's just eating away at you from the inside. Like you can't live that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on the other side, you find yourself finally able to just be a person with other people for no reason, which actually makes the whole thing immensely more meaningful to me. It has. Yeah. Yeah. Learning how to be a person with other people. (laughs) Right. In learning that, like, your personhood is not offensive. That's right. And I also don't have to be taking a constant inventory of all the people I'm with and all the things they're telling me and all the things I'm intuiting about who they are and how they behave and how they live and and right. um, unintentionally, subconsciously rating everybody, how, how close to or off the mark they are. And so what kind of work I've got cut out from me in all these people's lives. You know, like, oh, no, these people can be exactly, precisely as they are and completely beautiful. Because I feel like anytime I tried to do that before, I was having to be a little bit intellectually dishonest to accomplish it because I was having to say, oh, I mean, mean, deep down, I really do think that's kind of beautiful and it seems really healthy and I really like it, you know, this person and the way that they live and the, the, the way they you know, and, or who they love or the whole thing. But deep down, I'm like, yeah, but deep down, I guess I kind of know that it's, it's complicated and maybe that's not right. And maybe, you know, cause I got to square that with this thing over here that I, that my whole life's based on this external, this, this, these teachings or this book or this thing. And, and I'm not sure that it's going to be as loving with them as I'm able to be only because I just can see them and there's nothing wrong or offensive or threatening to me about it. But I'm going to have to eventually square it with this other thing. And if it doesn't square, I'm going to have to eventually confront them about it. And that sucks. And, you know, like when you're free of that burden too, it's like you realize how much you've been carrying. Yeah. Yeah. I think even with that though, um, that even reminds me too, though, of the agency and like realization that I can also protect myself though. I am allowed to be protective Mm. over myself too. It just doesn't have to go through a lens of like, is this offending a cosmic being first? (laughs) Right. And so like, I think that has been part of rebuilding too and reconstruction is learning to, to use that language of like learning to trust myself and like listen to my own body and what is hurting me. And so that's the funny thing is that part of that is like, no longer am I looking at, you know, the secular world and going, Oh no, you're offending me and offending God. I'm looking at these people that are part of fundamentalist Christianity and I'm going, Oh wait, uh, no, actually you're unsafe for me. Therefore you're the people I'm leaving. (laughs) Precisely. That's right. Yeah. It's it's the process of, of learning to lean on your own understanding. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And what a great and, thing that is. Right. Exactly. 
Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I really well done knowing what you needed and acting on it and getting what you needed. And it's a brave move, you know, to legitimately physically move and start over. And I hope to hear more at some point. And these are the stories I'm, I'm so looking forward to hearing over and over again yeah. on on this whole season. And in some way off and on for the rest of my life. I mean, this is like, these, these are the stories of life I want to hear. And so yeah. yours has been aspirational and very encouraging. And so thanks. Mm, thanks, Derek. Yeah. All right. Hope to talk to you later. You too. Okay. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Hey everyone, it's Kevin. I wanted to start this week in a different sort of meditative space without me talking, and I hope that the format was able to connect with everyone listening. If you've been keeping up with season 3 so far, you know we've been weaving portions of You Are Your Own by our producer Jamie throughout the episodes, we actually leaned quite a bit on it in this one especially. You can find more at jamieleefinch.com. The title, themes, and sonic palette of this episode were based in our producer Derek's song, Good Grief which is from his new album, Targets. Derek's music and other Derek-related things can be found at DerekWeb.com. We are completely listener-supported, so consider checking out The Airing of Grief on Patreon. Lots of bonus episodes and conversations are there, and we're currently releasing some pod mixes of Derek's stuff to patrons exclusively. Otherwise, that's all for now, so we will see you again next week, after church, for The Airing of Grief. (laughs) ¶¶